On today's show, Burt welcomes cannabis leader Jamie Shaw. Noted as Canada's only court-certified dispensary expert, Shaw was a key witness in the Allard trial, which came before the federal court and gave medical patients the right to grow cannabis themselves. She has successfully lobbied for dispensary regulation in Vancouver, Victoria, and other Canadian municipalities under prohibition, and has consulted at length with all levels of government on cannabis regulations. As the director of the BC Independent Cannabis Association and partner at Groundwork Consulting, Shaw continues advocating for and working with the growing Canadian cannabis industry. We go now to Bert in conversation. Good afternoon. Welcome to Friday. My special guest today is Jamie Shaw, who's a legend in the cannabis industry. I first met Jamie, I guess about two years ago now, and uh, I see her at cannabis conferences. I see her speaking at cannabis conferences. Um, I see her articles that she writes on cannabis, and she's been one of the cannabis Canadian cannabis leaders and advocates for decades. So welcome to the License to Chill, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Jamie, uh, I want to go back. How did it come to be that you got involved in this industry in the first place? Uh, it's There was a couple of different sort of starts, I think, that... that it's it's weird. It wasn't a, a smooth entry into the industry, I think, but there were things that happened earlier in my life that, that led to it. It's like, so I had done a lot of research on a documentary when I was making films about cannabis, and so I got super interested in the history of cannabis and uh, history of cannabis prohibition. Um, and then a few years later, a doctor diagnosed me with anxiety and suggested that I go to the Compassion Club. Uh, so then I became a member of the Compassion Club, and then a little while after that, I became a director of the Compassion Club. Um, but it wasn't actually until Harper got elected um, for his last term that I said, okay, I'm actually going to go work for the Compassion Club because he was saying he was going to shut them all down. So um, I, I started actually working for the Compassion Club um, around that time, 2012, beginning of like, January 2012. Yeah. So for people who aren't familiar, what exactly is a Compassion Club? Ah, that's that's tough because there's never been like a real definition. But the BC Compassion Club Society um, started in 1997. It's uh, North America's actually longest-running dispensary, um, and it uh, promoted a holistic approach to health. And so it had a lot of subsidized medicines. It had uh, an apothecary next door, and it would use uh, profits from the medical sales of cannabis uh, to provide other herbs to members. Um, a lot of ones in San Francisco were similar. The apothecary was kind of unique to the BC Compassion Club Society, but there were a lot of, of compassion clubs um, all through the Bay Area and uh, Vancouver, a couple in Toronto, um, dating from the early 90s. Now, are a lot of these compassion clubs now applying for a uh, retail cannabis license? Some are. Um, most are not. Um, you know, uh, when I was at the compassion club, every time a new regulatory change would come in, uh, we would look and see, is there a way that we can take care of our members under these rules? And the answer's always been no. Um, I, I think they're applying this time, but but it's still the same answer. They, they, you know, under the legal system the way it is now, most dispensaries cannot keep serving the patients that they're serving now. Um, so that's why you're seeing, you know, a lot of dispensaries closed, but some of the oldest in the country just got raided last week. They reopened. Um, we're, we're literally right back where we were in 2002, where we've got a handful of medical dispensaries that will continue serving their patients as long as they're able to, and a regulatory system that isn't paying attention. Okay. Now, this conversation goes a whole bunch of different directions based on what you just said. Um, <laughs> coming back on the, the raids, uh, there have been quite a few of them. I understand that some places, when they've been raided, after they've been warned, uh, they have chosen to reopen. 
And uh, there's one, I think, open again. They were raided in the early afternoon, but he was back open at 4.20 in the afternoon. Interesting yeah. timing. Yeah. And uh, that there's a lineup around the corner and yeah. a lot of community support. Same thing happened in Project Claudia. You know, lots has talked about how they shut down 60 dispensaries. Most of them were open an hour later. Um, I had gotten off a plane when, when Project Claudia was being carried out, meeting an American friend, also from the American cannabis industry. Um, and it took us maybe 10 minutes to get to a dispensary that had been raided earlier but was open and able to serve so it's 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 the same pattern that we've seen a lot right and it's we've been seeing it over and over again in every jurisdiction so it's it's kind of odd that that we're still back there yeah now if you are applying for a retail cannabis license, my understand you are an illegal dispensary and you've been raided. My understanding is it's going to be pretty tough for them to get through the regulatory approval process. Probably, <laughs> probably. And in BC, I think it's a little weird. Um, the provincial government has been clear by what they've not been saying and how they've not been saying it that they were giving um, traditional dispensaries a chance to get through the marketplace. They, there was no date that they were told to, to stop selling by other than when you have a license you can't sell illegal cannabis anymore. That's that's the guidelines they were given. right? Um, so it's odd that, that that would suddenly change without really any notice other than community safety coming in a week before going, hey, okay, this has changed. Um, it's, yeah, so it it's put some of them in a difficult position, um, but that's everything about the way this hand was handled did, right? Like there were a bunch of dispensaries that shut down um, on legalization day because they were sure that if they were open past that day, and then they saw after a few months that no, actually it didn't affect it. And, and the closest the government had kind of ever come to saying was literally the day you have a license, you can't sell illegal cannabis anymore. So, um, you know, some people uh, had a hard time because they closed. Some people had a hard time because they didn't close. You know, um, every situation is, is kind of so unique right now. Yeah, we, uh, there's no question the government's messaging on this thing was really flawed in the fall of a year ago because uh, some people were told if you want a retail cannabis license on a chance, add it, shut down now and wait. And some of these people are waiting for a year for their application to get through the system. Uh, some people continue to operate, and they got through the system and now have a retail cannabis license. So it's been a real mixed bag. Now let's talk a little bit about the rollout of cannabis. We're one year after legalization. Um, what's your take on how the one year has gone and where we're at in terms of the government process? I know you wrote a paper article for the uh, uh, business in Vancouver recently on red tape uh, and cannabis. Can you talk, give us your thoughts about how it's gone or not gone? It, it's, you know, there's so many variables. It's, it's really, it's a really nuanced conversation about why we're where we are, right? Um, you know, the BC government, in the very beginning, their messaging was absolutely flawed, um, but they were also hinting at things that you don't normally hear governments even hint at, such as keep selling illegal cannabis until the day you have a license. That was actually kind of astounding, right? But it didn't really get a lot of attention. Um, you know, on purpose. Um, but there was also the whole idea that if they opened a whole bunch of stores right away, 
they were stores that were competing with all of these potential licensees that were trying to work their way through the system. They would be stores that were selling cannabis, mostly not grown in BC, um, compared to stores selling local cannabis. Um, it, it wouldn't have really made a lot of sense to open a whole bunch of stores uh, in terms of BC's economy and what's already existing here, right? Um, it's it, Cannabis is a large chunk of, of BC's economy, and it's not legal cannabis that makes up that big amount, right? And so it, it was kind of vital for the BC government to be able to transition that, and, and that's not really happened because they hinted at Farmgate might come down the line once there's actually micros licensed. Um, you could see them maybe saying, you know, once there's some more BC micros licensed, then we can kind of open more stores and um, we can kind of actually transition our economy. But you really kind of need to see that whole picture and then with the licenses not coming and then Health Canada suddenly changing it so that you had to do your whole build out before you could even apply, um, that that really put BC in a, what, what do you do? Like they're trying their best to transition the system. Um, at least they think they are. Um, but they're actually being hamstrung at every level in, in, in trying to do that, right? So, I mean, right down to the medical dispensaries that we were talking about earlier from the illegal recreational ones, the illegal medical ones, um, online sales, all of it, right? It's all still illegal for the most part, and, and there's not really a, a clear path for most of it to become legal. No, I agree. Now, on the rollout, uh, right now we've got applications in place for private stores. We've got the government has their stores, which are predominantly in the rural areas of the province. I understand yeah. their strategy is go to the rural as opposed to urban areas first. Which makes sense. Um, the, what are your thoughts about the selection of product made available by the cannabis distribution branch in both government stores and private stores? What's your thoughts about the price points? Um, with edibles coming on stream, what are your thoughts about how that's going to roll out given our history of what we've just seen with respect to uh, how they rolled out the, uh, the, um, the sale of cannabis uh, to date? Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I think it'll keep building a, a market of people that are new to cannabis and don't really know any better. Um, unfortunately, you know, the people that consume the most amount of cannabis are actually the, a small percentage of consumers that are extremely knowledgeable. Um, and, you know, I think there was a stat recently where it was 90% of cannabis is consumed by 10% of Canadians. I mean, that's the market that you're not going to tap into with the rules the way they are right now. You in know, other words, not. they'll continue to stay with the black market. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, in addition to that, you're also forcing people to right like so uh, if there's patients that need high dose edibles for example they have no other choice right they, there's there's no way they're going to be able to access it they can make it themselves if they can grow it themselves if they're in a state to be able to do that um you know, a lot of the patients of, you know, compassion clubs and dispensaries that we were talking about earlier can't afford to do that, even the ones that are able to, um, because that requires a steady space, that requires an uninterrupted life, that requires a, a steady cash flow of at least a certain amount. Um, it's it, That's very difficult, right, for a lot of people. So um, there, there hasn't really been a, a much of a move to, to cater to these people. And that's those are the two most important to me right from from a, a social perspective it's most important that the patients are taken care of and from a business perspective you would think it's most important that the market is taken care of and if you're not taking care of the market of course it'll take care of itself yeah it's, they'll go someplace that's what happened just like you know? what happened during prohibition with alcohol people yeah. wanted it they weren't it was illegal to buy it so they made it themselves yeah 
Yeah. yeah, and 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 you know they've got tons of evidence around things like this as well. You know, in in Ontario, uh, I don't know how long ago now, maybe about fifteen years ago, uh, they lowered the price on cigarettes because they just could not stop the illegal flow of cigarettes, and they couldn't, you know, stamp out that black market. Um, and so, it's kind of weird that they have to keep relearning lessons that they've learned in other industries that they're they're not uh, realizing apply to cannabis as well. Yeah. Now I remember in Ontario, there's a huge issue around people going onto First Nations uh, property to buy ca- uh, t- tobacco products, and, yeah, well, uh, and, and because they it, uh, it was worse yeah. than that. So my hometown is is in a weird place. It's right on the border of Ontario and Quebec and Canada and the United States, and there's a First Nation reserve technically three that go right through all of those borders and and for a long time they didn't have to actually go through customs um but even on the american side so there was a a time where cigarettes would be nine dollars in ontario and you could go on the reserve and you could get them for a dollar or you could cross into the states and you could get them for like a dollar 25 and the closer you got to new york city the more expensive they got and the closer you were to canada the cheaper they were and so even taking the first nations and reserves out of the equation there was was a lot of cross-border trade going on with cigarettes significantly cheaper along the northern uh, U.S. border than anywhere else in the United States. Now, coming back to cannabis in B.C., as I understand right. it, for edibles, well, it's, well, it's actually sold by Health Canada, the maximum dosage for an edible is 10 milligrams, yep. correct? Yep. As I understand, if you're taking cannabis for medical reasons, that is, that's equivalent to drinking like beer. Yeah, I mean that's that's a, a, it's a serious issue. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the Smith trial was around medical access uh, to edibles, and what we're getting is adult use access, um, and that also kind of clouds the debate. I mean, ten milligrams. For myself, that wouldn't do very much. I'd have to have a lot of it. Um, but for a recreational experience, you don't know what it's going to do to somebody that hasn't really tried it before. They might find that very powerful. Um, so I'm, I'm not that opposed to that in terms of uh, a recreational market, at least as a starting point. Um, but for a medical market, that's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, as I, mean, I understand, like, you'd have to eat about 10, 10 brownies to get the, the dosage you need. Well, yeah, and that's it too, right? Like um, one, of the, one of the really uh, first casualties of, of of regulation was uh, in Vancouver um, when they wanted to license dispensaries. Uh, in order for Coastal Health to back them up, they had to remove edibles. Um, luckily, uh, Vision Council at the time knew that they were very important, and so they made an exemption for edible oils um, and um, other types of, of simple extractions. And so that at least allowed Compassion Clubs to keep selling. Uh, an edible product. Um, But what they wiped out were products that had um, no sugar, products that were dairy-free, products that were gluten-free, some products that were all of those things. There was infused granola. There was infused dried fruit. There were things that were actually really good for patients that, that understood maybe people have different conditions and there's different things that they need to avoid and the healthier it is, the better. Um, and that was the, the very first casualty of, of any regulation in Canada was when Vancouver came out with those regulations and, and we saw those disappear. And everywhere else in BC, it was gummies, it was chocolate bars, um, it, it was lollipops. It wasn't, it wasn't at all healthy, right? And, and we're seeing that continue into legalization instead of a return to the really healthy products that had come up naturally in Vancouver. So do you see moving forward that the government will carry more of those healthy products or where is that, uh, what's, is the government receptive to discussing this? Well, I mean, they're, they're treating it like it's just a recreational substance. Um, you know, the liberals 
when Joyce Murray first started kind of pushing the, the platform for legalization for the liberals to be behind that in 2013, they were meeting with a lot of activists and, and we were telling them that legalizing cannabis doesn't fix everything we're talking about. We were all talking about medical cannabis. And so we're like, great, you want to legalize? Awesome, go ahead. But it doesn't solve the issue. And what we saw even as, as recently as the task force report, they were split on the idea of whether to even have a separate system for medical or not, because half of them were convinced it, it wasn't necessary, um, which is the problem. The, it's actually the root of the problem. They've put an extra tax on it. They refuse to call it a medicine, and it doesn't look like they have any interest in actually improving medical access. So, you know, we're, we're not really doing this right at all. Yeah, that's my take. Now, what happened in the United States around this? Did some, when the states legalized, like California, for example, yeah. did they, I, my understanding, they did create a separate channel or separate policies for medical cannabis? It, it depends. They were, they were all very different, right? Like some of the very early ones were actually based on some models that we had set up here. Um, New Jersey's very first model, New Hampshire's very first model was based on a compassion club type model. Um, the ones in the Bay Area that were also the oldest, um, that, you know, you see Berkeley has subsidized medicine for people of low income. Um, Oakland has um, a really big inclusive, inclusivity um, kind of different. They've, they've made bylaws around minority businesses and who gets licenses, and they've had some amazing policies and success in Oakland, um, not so much in other cities so far. Um, San Francisco also, you saw some really progressive laws, but then you also see cities that were sort of against it, um, and so you see some bad laws there. In Washington, when they rolled it out, they did something pretty similar to what, what uh, we're doing, where they had... Patients in Washington had the right to access medical access, but there was nowhere they could access it. So there were a whole bunch of gray market dispensaries that were specifically only dealing with you had to be a resident of Washington and you had to have authorization to use cannabis. Um, that's, that's the only people they would serve to. Then when Washington legalized, they didn't include those medical dispensaries. Um, Strangely, Washington's kind of come to an interesting place, at least in terms of recreational market, where what they have legally now looks like what we used to have illegally. It's pretty close. Um, in terms of medical access, they're, they're still dealing with black market dispensaries because there's nowhere else for them to go. Um, Colorado and other states have said the, the medical dispensaries that are there now should be the first licensed. Um, Colorado's had a pretty smooth rollout, uh, especially when you start comparing it to all other states. The, the rollout um, was fairly seamless. There, there were certain issues um, early on, um, but it, it, it's actually been a fairly smooth system. People in Colorado seem happy with it, that there's uh, the medical access is still there because that was the first thing regulated. Um, so... It just, it, it really kind of depends, um, I think, who's in government at the time that the state is forced to do that um, and, and what their what their goals actually are. The, the biggest thing, I think, the difference is that because the states are doing it themselves illegally, according to the federal government, um, they their ulterior motive is to protect that state's industry. Well, that's actually pretty good, right? Like, that actually aligns. Um, here, we've got a federal government, and that's where you see the problems that I was talking about earlier with BC. You've got a BC government that's trying to figure out, okay, how do we make sure that BC doesn't really get killed by this when we just lose this giant part of our economy and don't transition it? And you've got the Canadian government that doesn't care at all about whether the local stores in BC or the local farmers in BC have jobs. So... Um, in many ways, the states are very lucky to be able to, to do it on a local level. Yeah. And uh, now of all the states in the United States, 
Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little mm-hmm. bit. Which state do you think it got it right or the best closest to getting it right? It's I can't. I have to make a Franken state of like um, California, Washington. Something okay, like that. not Colorado. And not Washington, 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 D.C., oh, yeah, Washington, no, D.C. Washington, Washington, forget that one. <laughs> um, so what about Colorado? I've always... So like I was saying earlier, I think that the focusing on what was existing was, was huge for them. Um, California did not do that, but now they're actually making some really, particularly the, the SAR. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to interview her uh, at ICBC recently, mm-hmm. and I asked her, I was like, yeah, okay... I, I enjoyed that interview. Yeah, she was really great, and, and I asked her, you know, as a state, how can you force a city that's a lower level of government than you, that, that you can't really tell exactly what to do in that way, how do you force them to have more um, diversity initiatives to make sure that they're giving more licenses to the people of color communities that have been, you know, targeted more throughout this entire drug war? And, um, she just kind of like she didn't miss a beat she was just like well we have we can just not give them money for other stuff (laughs) and and the fact that she was so willing to say that and so quickly it was it was it showed that at least that group of bureaucrats um you know regardless of what the the elected politicians might tell you that group of bureaucrats really cared and and that's we're kind of there in bc too like one of the things that's really I found sort of sad is that um, all of my time dealing with uh, bureaucrats in in British Columbia, um, particularly around health, they're really educated on cannabis. They're really smart, but they're not the ones that get to set the policy directions. They can only make certain recommendations when they get the policy directions from whoever's in charge. Um, and so it's been really kind of sad to see certain people like Dr. Brian Emerson uh, is a perfect example. We were at uh, an arthritis conference recently where we were broken up into groups and told to kind of like write down what was really important to educate people on um, when uh, legalization came. And um, this, you know, this government bureaucrat, this doctor wrote down spirituality. He thought the most important thing was that we not forget the spirituality part of the plant. Um, you know, we like I said, we've got very educated bureaucrats. They're just they're not the ones that get to set the policy. In other words, it goes from those people over to the uh, the law enforcement, the regulators, and who set all the policies in place to, to to prevent people from having access to the product they want to have access to. Yes, yeah, and 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 on the direction of right, whoever's sort of in charge, and and all they can do is say, well, these are our best recommendations. This is what you know. But you'll notice, like um, a, a good example of it is when Vancouver did decide to start regulating regulating dispensaries, uh, and the provincial government didn't say a word. Um, the provincial health officer came out and said, we think it's a good move. Um, and there were there was no outcry from any bureaucrats anywhere in the province. There was none, right? And, and um, that's another one of those things that kind of went under people's radar. They didn't really notice, but it's like, it's, it's, that, was, that was pretty telling in terms of, of who's doing the actual work um, again, if they're being directed to do it in, in a way that's not going to be helpful anyway, there's not much they can do. Yeah. Now, you and I have attended a lot of conferences. You've mm-hmm. been to a lot more than I have. As a matter of fact, I still walk, remember walking down the street in Toronto this summer at the Lyft conference there. Conferences out here. There's another big Lyft conference coming up here in January. Mm-hmm. And I go that, outside of a lot of conferences. I'm not necessarily yeah, inside. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's where the real conference that's takes place. That's why you place. saw me on the street yeah. outside of yeah, yeah. But that's where the real <laughs> conference takes place with these things. It's like going to a political convention. The, the real action's out in the hallways and the corridors and outside, not and in the hall. And at the bar, come and on. And at the bar, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, coming back on this, 
at these conferences, the first thing I know is that most of them, there are very few f- officials there from the provincial government, if mm-hmm. any. Yeah. The Health Canada people tend to show up, and they've been mm-hmm. pretty good at speaking, reaching out, and listening. But the BC bureaucrats aren't there. And I'd love to see them there speaking, talking, or just being in listening mode and listening to what's going on. But the other thing is I know that in terms of how uh, we ended up with the model we have in BC, the mixed model where you have Mm -hmm. government stores and private stores, that initially the BC NDP government in the last election said that they were going to put retail cannabis into liquor stores, private liquor stores Mm -hmm. and government liquor stores. Indeed, uh, then opposition leader Horrigan was on CKNW in a debate with Christy Clark and the leader of the Green Party. And uh, and uh, he said, no, if we're elected, we're going to put them at the, both in the same store. Christy Clark's position was, no, you can't put two vices in the same store. Mm. And as I understand what happened was Horrigan got into government. It was the health officials that came in and said, no, you can't put two vices in the same store. you got to separate them out. Even though we got situations where the cannabis store could be the thickness of a wall away from a, a, from a liquor store. Yeah. So... Coming back on it, that's the last thing I ever heard that health officials were really wading in on the whole cannabis thing. Is there an opportunity for them to now go to the Attorney General and the Solicitor General, who both have responsibilities in this area, and say, guys, you need to change this thing up a bit? The, the problem is, you know, at least from, from my last few conversations with, with um, like Mary Shaw, for example, uh, the, the problem is that they are trying their best to support local. They want to. Uh, and it's other things that are getting in the way. It's, it's uh, ALC. Um, it's municipalities. It's Metro Vancouver. Um, it's things that are really not you know, not anything to do with, with them and nothing that's in their power to fix. Um, so that's, that's another problem, right? Uh, that was sort of what I was talking about in, in the article that you mentioned earlier. Um, there's, there's layers of governments and organizations and commissions um, that all kind of want to have a say uh, in how cannabis is regulated, how it's grown. Um, and so that's, yeah, you're seeing a patchwork of, of some pretty harsh things in certain areas. Yeah. And I had, a, I had a meeting this week with the city of Vancouver senior official, and they said, well, we're still waiting to see what revenues flow to us, but nothing's been received yet from uh, the province on, on cannabis. Yeah. And yet yeah. they're dealing with a lot of the enforcement stuff, cost of, of policing and everything else, um, plus uh, processing applications. Uh, whether it be a development permit or the licensing application. Now, in terms of your activism with government, you have, you're a director of the BC Independent Cannabis Association. Mm-hmm. What exactly is that? Well, so the BC Independent Cannabis Association mostly is about being independent in BC and cannabis. Um, Pretty well covered. It's, yeah. Um, it, we put on educational events uh, about once a month where we have industry professionals kind of come in and just talk and share knowledge. Um, sometimes there's different topics, so we'll have a panel. Um, the events are always free. So, uh, you know, the whole goal is to get people really educated about all of the regulatory changes that come all the time, all the nuances, um, hear from people that are dealing with the problems. Um, you know, so I, I was lucky enough to interview John Conroy for a, a little while ago last time. Um, you know, Travis Lane, I think, was the last one talking on some growing techniques. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's just to kind of educate people in D.C. That are, that are interested in the industry on, on what's going on and just as a resource for them. Now, you mentioned John Conroy. He's mm-hmm. a legend on, in the legal community mm-hmm. fighting the fight for on cannabis. Now, is he part of this current uh, medical dispensary battle before the courts? 
Um, he is. This is sort of a. This is. Uh, I believe it's an offshoot of an earlier case. Um, and so uh, he is that he was in that earlier case as an addition. Um, so it, it was like a side issue. Um, but yes, yeah. A sh- short answer, yes. No, Jack Lloyd, who's also awesome. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you Big following reason. that? Are you following that case fairly closely? Yeah, yeah, I, I am. Um, um, I'm, 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 I'm interested to see how it goes. I, I've talked about the, some of the earlier cases that led to this. Um, I, I really feel that there was it was treated as a loss. I wasn't involved in the case at all, but they were. Uh, there was a bunch of dispensaries trying to appeal. Um, to the city of Vancouver, but what they were really saying was that the city didn't have the right to license an illegal business, and so even though they kind of took it as a loss personally to to themselves in in the terms of that court case, what that court case actually affirmed was that a city has the right to license a legal bu- an illegal business, um, and so in my mind that's where everything should have gone in terms of the fight for medical cannabis dispensaries, um, particularly in certain communities. I think uh, that could that could have been an approach that was taken um, but instead it kind of I think it went into appeal and and I don't know if I don't know if people were kind of paying attention to the nuances of how that ruling came out so um, in terms of the one that's been going on for the last two days I'll, I'll wait until it's yeah. you know. now that appeal came out as a result of a previous court decision which or where the court ordered that the dispensaries in Vancouver had to shut down the illegal dispensaries had to shut down for medical um, I, I'm not entirely sure whether this is the same one because I know that the f- I, I, I actually would have to double check that because I know that there was the um, there was a, the challenge that was launched first and then there was also an appeal launched by a group of, of 36. Um, so yeah, there's it's I think it was the ones that weren't licensed that started this one. Okay, yeah, and that's yeah. my understanding too. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in terms of you uh, and the work of the Independent Cannabis Association, what else is going on that you're involved with? Uh, well, your know, groundwork's still going, and, and uh, Four Plants Cup has been really exciting to kind of watch that happen. Um, that was uh, just a bunch of cannabis, Canadian cannabis people on Twitter going, hey, we should do this. Um, so can, and, you put, uh, can you put some flesh on those bones for our listeners? Yeah, so the Four Plants Cup is um, Canada's first sort of legal home grow cup. Uh, we figured out a way that, that um, the, the, judge, you, the judges are the contestants, so they're just sharing their cannabis amongst themselves. Um, you know, they've got four plants to grow and compete against each other in various categories, um, including like amateur and pro and indoor and outdoor and, and various things like that. Um, part of the process required judging on growing journals and things like that. So um, while it is a competition, it's it's really kind of meant to kind of show people that you can grow four plants and, and how you can grow four plants and different techniques and tricks that might work for you and that maybe worked for certain people in the in the competition, um, you know, competition. Um, so it's um, we do have some great prizes and it's going to be, uh, yeah, it's really exciting to kind of watch it come along. Can the public go and watch this happening? Uh, I don't know if we've decided on a live event anywhere because it's nationwide and so it's it's kind of difficult to say, okay, well, um, where where would we put it? So I'm I'm yeah I don't think the decision has been entirely nixed yet, but um, so it's not quite like an international wine uh, competition where people bring in wines from around the world and they have professionals taste it, sample it, and if they rate them and they get it's like medals. a it's like a modern version of that. Everything yeah. gets done through the post and yeah. through the internet. Right? Okay, so, yeah. that sounds fascinating. So yeah. four cups comes from the fact that people four can plants. Leave, four, yeah. yeah, four yeah. plants. You can grow four plants legally. Yeah. Heaven forbid you have a fifth plant. Yeah, and you can't have it. You you. Can't 
can't have your and it located at your property or a place where people can see it from outside or off yeah. property, which is interesting. And <laughs> then you then you you take that you have the competition, and I guess people are trying to genetically alter the plants and move them and, and work with the strains and do different things with it. Oh, well, I mean, that's that's not really what this one's about. So it's not about the genetics um, or, or the breeding of it necessarily. It's it's more just kind of about the growing, the growing technique. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why the, we're, they're being marked also on a journal. Like, did you keep a good growing journal where you kind of described everything that happened so you could track if there was a problem or you knew how to kind of what to tweak? And so it's, yeah, it's not so much about the breeding or the, or the genetic as, as it is about just growing. All right. Yeah. Well, I, when coming along that line, I still find it fascinating that this one plant has so many benefits compared to dandelions or <laughs> ragweed yeah. or something yeah. else yeah. that's out there. I just find okay. it amazing that this one plant has so many properties and so many benefits. Well, and there, it's not like, it's not like entirely without precedent. I, I kind of make the joke a lot of times that people think it's going to be like you know this huge crop um, comparable to like alcohol or tobacco, and it's like I'm like no, it's like corn. You can make intoxicants out of it. You can make fuel out of it. You can you know you, corn isn't everything. Corn starch corn flour and think that's what cannabis could be like and should be like yeah yeah you make salads for cows out of uh, corn um mm -hmm. then coming back to you you were just recently with passion brands yeah. yeah and uh i heard a report that you might be doing something different um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I, I have received notice, uh, and then there was a press release put out yesterday. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's about all I can say on that for now. Okay, yeah. that's yeah. fine. Yeah. Um, in terms of the, the structure of our industry, mm -hmm. uh, if you had any recommendations of, do you have any recommendations how we should be changing that industry up? Because I, the way I kind of see it is I think there's, right now there's a, as we're sitting here talking, there's people mm -hmm. driving around the province looking for sites for cannabis stores. And are we going to get to, a, and there's no limit on the number of cannabis stores. It's not like liquor stores mm -hmm. where there's a limit on, the, there's a moratorium on the issuance of new ones. Are we going to get to a saturation point or an oversaturation point and the, pro, the there'll be too many cannabis stores and some stores will close? And are we going to have the same thing in the, in the cultivation side of things because there's a lot of interest in uh, being, becoming a producer or a processor? What are your thoughts about this? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends. It can change, right? Like the micro license program wasn't um, horrible. It was, it was a pretty good... Uh, amendment to the previous program and it was going to bring in a lot of people then by changing that halfway through and requiring a, gr a grow that blocked a lot of people and so it depends on further changes whether they're going to keep shutting people out or not um, absolutely there's a saturation point particularly again when you're talking about a different stream of product completely um, you know there's I've been watching arguments on social media the last couple of days about well there's there's too much cannabis in the space and oh no there's a shortage of cannabis in the space and you, you see people stating both sides very vehemently and it's this one brush across Canada doesn't work to understand what's going on. So in Newfoundland, we've had private retailers close because there's no product for them. Um, in Alberta, the retailers were worried that they were handing out so many licenses that they weren't going to be able to survive the startup costs of being a business because there was too many other, too much other competition. Um, you know, then you see Ontario that's clamoring for more stores. Um, even though they've actually got more than they were supposed to at this point under win, right, which kind of keeps getting left out uh, of most conversations around their rollout. Um, Saskatchewan seems to be doing just fine. Retailers there are in a tougher spot because they, they don't have the same sort of buying power um, that a province does. Um, so that's kind of a sore spot 
in 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 Saskatchewan. Um, I think you know I saw an interesting thing in Thailand the other day where they're uh, going to allow patients to grow six plants. Um, so oh, they get really? two more. They get two more than two us. Two more. Um, but also they're going to be allowed to sell it to the government for medical cannabis. Um, I think some sort of a program like that where you're actually testing cannabis, particularly if it's being donated by people, um, make sure that there's some quality control on it. There's no reason that that can't be a, a valid source of subsidized medicine. There's no reason we can't have collectives. There's there's no reason we can't have any of those things other than the way the regulations are written right now. So, yeah, I would, in terms of our, our province, I'd love to see us get to the point where uh, uh, you have farm, farm gate sales. Yeah. Uh, I think that would be huge yeah. uh, because uh, it, it solves a lot of problems. Secondly, I'd like to see the point where a producer can have a retail store at the production site just selling their own product, just like you go to a winery or a brewery and you can go and buy yeah. the product from mm-hmm. them. I'd also like to see us get to the point where we have a, a well, I, my own view is the government should not be in the retailing of cannabis business. They no. should be out of it because <laughs> it creates an awkward relationship that we see on the liquor side uh, as well where you're, uh, business partner is the liquor distribution mm-hmm. branch or the cannabis distribution branch, but they are also still your competitor. And well, and it's also it's also sort of indicative of the lack of respect that they have for the market that forced them to admit they were wrong this whole time, um, because all these provinces just suddenly thought they could do brokers' jobs. That was a very specialized skill. There, there was a very uh, small subset of people that were very good at that. Um, that's a whole other job and a whole other skill set that a province doesn't have at all. And to think that, the, and for them to think that they would is is hubris. Now I want to come back to the uh, BC Independent Cannabis, so- Cab- Ca- Cannabis Association. Yeah. Yeah. Would you ever consider organizing a roundtable discussion uh, that would involve the regulators? Mm-hmm. Uh, from the province, Health Canada Mm -hmm. officials, and RBC health officials to talk about all these issues we've been talking about and try and Mm -hmm. get them to the table to say, okay, we're one year in, here's what we see going wrong, this is what we think you've done right, these are the changes we'd like to see moving forward. Uh, Because that, to me, is a dialogue that needs to happen. Yeah, that that is, you know, we've got different levels of government and different agencies all telling each other sort of different things and and uh, going about different goals, right? And so, um, I think I think uh, an inclusive discussion with all of those groups would be good. Um, I also would include First Nations groups on that because their their issues have really not been looked at at all. Everything to do with the Cannabis Act does not comply with the First Nations Land Management Act or the Indian Act or UNDRIP, right? So, um, there's some serious issues there that need to be worked out as well so yeah i agree with that and on the first nations one there's always this uh, underlying feeling out there in the cannabis industry that the first nations applications are getting through the system faster and secondly i just was brought to my attention a few weeks ago that there's a drive-through cannabis store on a first nations property up near enderby yeah, which is probably one of the reasons why they started putting uh, licenses through faster. There was a, a pretty well-publicized story of a, of a First Nations Reserve not getting their license. Um, so then they started, yeah, pushing them through, especially because most are not interested in, in applying uh, for different reasons, right? But um, many of them are still interested in cannabis. So that so, creates an interesting situation. Now, were you speaking at the ICBC conference? I, I'm not, no, sorry, the LIFT conference. I can't get all these no, conferences straight. No, I, I am speaking at the ICBC in San Francisco. Yeah. When's, I, when's that? Um, that one is February, okay. I think. Yeah. And then yeah. What, in uh, January at LIFT? 
No, no, I'll be outside somewhere maybe. But uh, that's that's <laughs> no where I was in the last two lifts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I thought you did a great job interviewing the woman from the Canada, California Laurie Cannabis Ajax, Bureau. Yeah, Laurie yeah. Ajax. She was yeah. terrific. Yeah, she really was. And, and uh, what, it was nice to see a, a government uh, regulator, especially at that level, um, that really did seem to understand the issues and really did care um, about it, at least from a, a local business perspective. And that's. Like I said, that's they, that's their benefit of being able to do it at a state level where we're hampered by doing it federally. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, thank you very much for coming on to yeah. License to Chill. Thanks for having Please me. Please come back because I'm sure there's going to be Can another installment. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's one thing you can do here because we're not on TV. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, do come back and uh, keep us informed what's going on with Jamie Shaw. Thank you very I'll much for being best. here. Thanks okay. a lot. Thanks. You've been listening to License to Chill with your host, Bert Hick. This podcast is recorded live at Studio 710 in downtown Vancouver and produced by Jade Maple. For more information, check out risingtideconsultants.ca.